Welcome to Right Side of the Brain, the podcast created by Interact Stroke Support. Interact are a charity that take professional actors into hospitals and stroke clubs to deliver a live interactive reading service to stroke survivors. And we now also deliver the service virtually, directly into people's homes. Please visit our website, www.interactstrokesupport.org, for more details. Our guest this week is Nick Clark. Nick is the founder of the charity Stroke Information, and he is also himself a stroke survivor. Hi, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you very, very well. Thank you. Good. Um, such a such a, a, a pleasure to, to meet you. Likewise, it's all good. Uh, Nick, let's uh, let's start at the very beginning. Um, first yeah. of all, uh, a very warm welcome to our podcast, Right Side of the Brain. Nick, uh, for for the benefit of uh, our listeners, could you tell us who you are and what it is that you do? I'm nobody, really. Um, I I'm an ex-footballer, uh, and I've even played at Old Trafford. Manchester United, the home of Manchester United. Um, but in 2012, September 2012, I had a severe stroke to the left-hand side of my rear, rear side of my brain, and I was left completely um, stranded down the right my right-hand side. Um, I couldn't use my right-hand side at all. Um, I spent four weeks in hospital. And then started sort of my recovery journey and um, found that there's very little help, support, information, guidance, whatever you want to call it, for people that have gone through the same sort of thing. So I started a movement, if you like, and, and we uh, managed to get charity status in April 2016. And um, I, I just love doing what I do. So Nick, let, let's just slightly rewind. Then there you are. You're uh, a, a professional footballer. You said uh, was that for Stockport? That's right. Yeah, yeah. So, so you're a, a professional footballer for for Stockport. Uh, what what position did you play? Just out of interest. Uh, well, as, as you'll probably, if you're aware with football, as you start and you uh, hit the the peak of your career, you'll start at say left, as I did on the left wing. Uh, and towards the end of my career, I ended up being a left back. Um, it was usually left back in the change room, but that's another story. You're meant to laugh there. <laughs> I was, I was laughing, Nick. Um, and uh, so, was your dream uh, to obviously be a professional footballer? Uh, uh, the, the assumption, you know, for people who, uh, you know, don't know who maybe love football but don't actually know the ins and outs of what what the day-to-day -day life of a professional footballer is is that you are physically fit people so yeah. when this stroke occurred this must have come as a as a huge shock to somebody like you who would have been uh, physically active uh, most days yeah i mean it, i mean i wasn't in i was i wasn't playing at the time of my stroke i, I finished playing at the age of 40 
um, mainly for just sort of amateur and um, vets teams. Uh, but I still had my hand in, in the football side of things. And with me being the uh, disability liaison officer now for Stockwell County as well, again, it's, a, it's very cliche, but you um, you don't realise what you've got until you've lost, you've lost, lost it. So, um, you know, I mean, the, the, there is a common misconception about strokes that they just happen to people that are in their sort of late 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s and so on. Um, but it is such a misconception because I know through what I'm doing now that we've been aware of babies, even unborn babies, having strokes. Um, so mm. recently, last year, we helped um, a lady whose son had had a stroke. In fact, he'd had three strokes, um, but he was five years of age. He's five years of age. So, uh, again, it sort of blows that misconception about strokes just relating to the elderly people. Uh, it blows it out of the water. Nick, can you, can you describe to, to us, when you had your stroke and you were in hospital, um, which hospital were you in and, and what was the uh, rehabilitation that you went through? It's quite, quite poignant, actually, um, because I was, I was taken to Stepping Hill Hospital in Stockport and um, at the time, it was before um, a hyperacute stroke units being developed as such. So I was, it was sort of quarter to seven in the morning by the time that the paramedics had come and assessed me. And initially, they were going to take me to Salford Royal, um, which would have been a complete and utter nightmare for my wife to get to. But in the end, we were like, 15 minutes from Stepping Hill, opening its doors. So the decision was take me to A&E at Stepping Hill first to get me assessed. Um, and I spent one one night at Stepping Hill um, because I was quite fortunate that I had um, private health care. I had the opportunity to be moved to the Alexandra Hospital again in Cheadle, which is literally two minutes away from my house and um again through my time at as volunteering on for the nhs on the stroke ward the the, the time of being in uh, the alexandra was fantastic because it's like it's like a hotel so you get your own little private room you, you um your physios come to your room you do your, your workouts etc but realistically, going back when I was volunteering at the for the NHS, you've got no marker, if you like. You're going off your if you're in a private room, which again I get I got looked after with nice meals and all the rest of it, television and but you can't see what other patients are doing. And when when I volunteered at Stepping Hill, I thought it was marvellous that you then sort of um you used another stroke survivor if you like as a barometer because you then say look they, they can they came in after me but they're walking why aren't i walking and it's that kind of thing and and you've got to sort of build that sort of mentality to i mean again won't i won't jump the bridge too much but um i firmly believe that through the charity stuff that i'm doing now 
I, I don't think you start your recovery program until you actually accept that the strokes happened. Uh, not necessarily why, uh, because I think if you say or ask yourself why the stroke happened, you'll be there for a long time. But if you just accept that it's happened and, you know, you sort of say it's happened, so I've got to get on with what I've left, left with. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, again, I, I can't reiterate enough how much I enjoy doing what I'm doing now. One thing I'd like to um, just touch on, Nick, if I may, is upon hospital discharge, so once once you had left the hospital and uh, you'd, you'd gone back home, what sort of interventions from occupational and speech therapists did you have after that? Um, it's very limited. I mean, it, I mean, I, I can only talk about my own personal journey, but I do know that in the in the real world, effectively, um, it is very limited, and you're sort of giving it for. A, six weeks um and then effectively it's down to you to keep pushing and keep pushing and keep trying and, and i i think if i'm being completely honest with the the work that i've sort of done for the last six years i found that a lot of people tend to to, to build on the fact of the word plateau um because they hear it from occupational therapists from physios you know, oh, he's, re he's, re he's reached the best he's going to get now. And then the kind of, the stroke survivor and their family members tend to give up. And that's what we, as as our charity, we sort of try and eradicate. It's, it's a question of that you never give up. You've got to keep going. You know, that this is uh, such a key point that you make, because this is something that we've been very, very aware of ourselves, that quite often within hospitals, doctors will say things like, uh, wherever you are in your uh, rehabilitative stage after six months, that's going to be it for you for the rest of your life. And so many stroke survivors that we've encountered, um, yes, they might reach a plateau for a certain period of time, but then after that, they suddenly continue uh, uh, improving. But for so many other people, they get to that six-month stage and they think, Oh well, the doctors told me. Well, this is this is it now for me, and they they lose heart. They they lose faith in thinking they can carry on improving, and so that they they sort of reinforce the 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 very prediction that the doctor had given them. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, again, I won't mention names, but I've I've actually seen it. I when I when I was volunteering at the hospital, um, we used to do things on a on a daily sort of basis, although I was only there sort of maybe once or twice a week. Um, and we'd do in the day room where we'd encourage the current stroke survivors at that time to sort of engage with somebody who's been there. I remember we were playing a simple game of hangman and we had a, a whiteboard and it was a question of you had to pick a letter out and we're going through it every single patient and say, look, think of a letter that, it could be. Um, we weren't that cruel. We give them a, like subjects, so they had an idea that roughly it was either a type of car, type of music, or food in this particular case. And we're going around the room and around the table, and we got to this chap who was at the time in his late sixties, and um, who just laughed. He just smiled and giggled. And I remember at the time the occupational therapist went. Don't 
don't worry yourself too much about Mr. X. Call him John for, for, for argument's sake. Um, and I looked at the occupational therapist and said, what do you mean? Oh, John has plateaued. He won't do anything. He, he won't be able to speak. And it was a bit like a red rag to a bull for me. I was like, what? How can you say that he he won't talk again, that he, he won't do it? Anybody who knows me knows I'm a bit of a practical joker and I like to prove people wrong in respect of what they're going through. Or what. Um, so I turned around to the occupational therapist and said, I don't think you should be saying that. And um, again, it went round, got to John and I'm going, as I was sending John a telepathic message. And I was doing it that hard that I nearly had a toilet accident. Um, but seriously, out of, out of nowhere, this chap who effectively had given, been given no hope, he just turned around, looked at the whiteboard, giggled, and he went, well, I'm the hot pot. And I'm like, what? It was as though you'd witnessed a miracle. It was just amazing, absolutely amazing. So my, my sort of take on that is, yeah, you should never give up. Never, ever give up. Nick, why do you think we are in this situation because you you've given that anecdote of, of your own personal experience i've heard very similar anecdotes from stroke survivors who have said the same thing why do you think the hospital practitioners who I, i'm sure have got the best intentions I'm, I'm sure that they're not you know doing this deliberately but why do they have this attitude regarding plateau and saying things like that to, to people uh, that, that may then discourage very, very positive, uh, you know, rehabilitative progress later down the line? I, I think there's a couple of factors. Um, finance and funds and, and getting people that sort of one-on-one -on -one intense rehabilitation. Um, I also think that there's not enough real-life stories of success stories where you know, like, for instance, this John, I, I know other cases where, you know, stroke, stroke patients that have become locked in as a result of their stroke, and all they can do is blink their eyes. And it, when you see that in reality, it is really, really scary. It's, it's frightening. But I'm quite lucky to be privileged to know two former locked-in patients who are now thriving absolutely thriving i bet one of them is dr kate allett yes it is <laughs> yeah, Who I know. yeah kate allett and i met um i think over social media i remember she was she was sort of uh bordering on her sort of charity status with fighting strokes and i arranged to to meet well i think she sent me a text message or something and said i'm in stockport today do you fancy meeting up for a coffee and i'm like uh, yeah, but where are we going to meet? And I met her at Stockport train station and literally she got in my car and it was as though we were on a date. It was like, where do we go? Should we go to the pub? Or oh, I can't really go to the pub. Should we go to a cafe? And we just hit it off and we ended up talking in the car outside the, the train station. If, if anybody was walking past and not knew anything about us, we were probably like a married couple that were having an affair. It was that kind of thing. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, and I still do speak to Kate, and I think she's a, a marvellous lady, a, a, a very inspiring lady. Yes, yeah, she's she's been on the podcast. 
yeah, she, yeah, she's yeah, been yeah, a, a, a podcast guest of, of ours. Re really yeah, fantastic. Brilliant. And the, the other guys, the other guys from Stockport as well, this is why I thought there might be something in the local brewery. Um, he's called Pete Coglin. Um, he's the original Wizard of Oz. I don't know if you've ever come across him, but he's written a book called In the Blink of an Eye. And he has gone through, he's gone through cancer and obviously he was locked in. Um, but we, we're not, I'm not, I'm not um, promoting our own efforts and stuff, but we actually managed to get Pete a job um, working, looking after somebody who's also locked in. Uh, he went over back to Australia where he's from uh, or where he'd lived for a while. Um, and now he's back in there. And I believe he is a carer for people in the, uh, the rehab side of things. So yeah, amazing stuff. Nick, tell us about stroke information, uh, what stroke information does and why you felt it was important to, to uh, set stroke information up. If, if I'm completely honest, I, I didn't like the way that um, the National Stroke Charity did things in respect that, as a stroke survivor, you are charged to attend a stroke club. And it's only like £2.50, £3 or whatever. But for someone who has no means of income rather than you know, other than relying on benefits, even £2.50 is a lot to ask for someone to go and have you know, a chat to some other stroke survivors. And um, especially when you find out afterwards that they then, the stroke group themselves, have to pay the national charity a nominal amount, I believe it's about 50 quid uh, per year, to be affiliated with the national charity. And I'm like, what? This is, this is ludicrous. So I, I just came up with the vision of um, being a little bit different. So it was actually... When you look at the national charity, um, you have a lot of sort of a number of volunteers, but you have a number of stroke survivors that are then become the ambassadors and are also volunteers for them. Yet the people who are getting and demanding the wages really have not got a clue about what it's like to be impacted by stroke. And that's why I wanted to try and change things and, um, we started Stroke Information in 2014 um, and opted for charity status. We got that in April 2016, and we've just gone on from there. I mean, we established a regular drop-in um, where anybody impacted by stroke in the local area could come in, talk to us, find out what sort of benefits they can apply for, blue badges, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But then we, we were probably having about 50 people a month coming to, to that drop-in, all different ages, all different walks of life. But then the pandemic hit, so we had to sort of scale things down. Um, but we, we did this. We went online with Zoom and things like that. So although it <laughs> sort of COVID impacted us, it didn't stop us. We went, to, went on Zoom, and now we've got people from all over the UK that join us on the, on the Zoom. So... It's great, and um, what we want to do is we want to try and get the stroke survivor, if you like, back to work, uh, back in employment. And as you'll probably be aware, that there's when when you when someone has a stroke, they feel as though that's the end for them. As in, 
they can't go back out to work again. They don't feel worthy. They don't feel part of something. And I'm sort of saying, no, 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 hang on a minute. I want you to be part of this. It's your story. You've got your own story to tell. So but be a part of us. And, you know, if we can get you work, then we'll get you work. And we have just employed our first employee this January. Um, and he's only doing five hours a week. Um, so it doesn't impact any of his benefits or anything like that. But for that five hours a week, he's got a sense of purpose. And it's magical, absolutely magical. Let me ask you something, Nick. And uh, I I sort of feel this. Uh, I certainly hear this a lot. And I have to be honest, it, it does slightly annoy me. Uh, I don't know what you're going to think about this. But there are some people who seem to have a view that the only thing that stroke survivors are interested in are all things related to stroke. Now, I don't hold that view because I hold a view that a stroke survivor is a human being. They're interested in a whole load of things. Obviously, you know, a, a, a stroke is something that they have to deal with, but they're not totally obsessed with it. And I just wanted your view on that. If, I, if I'm honest, it's, it's like the easiest way to say it is that when, when, a, when a single stroke survivor meets another stroke survivor, they've got an instant bond. They automatically know exactly what, well, not exactly, but they've got a good idea of what that person has gone through. Um, so they, they share the stories if they want to. Some people I appreciate, I respect that they don't like talking about the stroke. Some people love, like myself, talking about my stroke, trying to educate others. But no, like, like, it, my, my life doesn't evolve around stroke, but it is a major part of what happened. Um, I mean, I still, I still love to love football. I still go to football. I still watch football. Um, obviously, I don't play it anymore, but who knows what will happen in a few years' time or whether I can even go as far as walking football. I, I, I don't know. But uh, no, it, stroke is a massive part of your life, but it's a, on the same token. So is it if you have a heart attack? You know, you've got to have that sort of relation that says, like, I can I can relate to that because I've been through it. But certainly, no, I'm not all completely focused on on stroke. I mean, life life is hard, um, and what we as a charity do is try and help people cope uh, and manage. Um, I mean, one of the common things that we hear is, "Oh, he's not the same person." Well, no, no, actually, he is the same person. He's just having to do things differently. You know, even even the loved ones of the stroke survivors, getting them to understand and comprehend what it's all about, and you know, we we don't um, we don't claim to have all the answers, but collectively, you know, I can go and speak to John or, or to Ben or or Rona and say, look, you know, how are you feeling about this? And they'll share me their experience, and I go, yeah, good point. I never thought of that. One of the common things. I, I was uh, home from hospital. My wife had gone out to work and a typical bloke sat there in front of the telly trying to sort of uh, engage with crosswords. And um, it got to the stage where it was about half 11 and a typical bloke got the munchies. I was like, I fancy cheese on toast. 
So I hobbled into the kitchen and thought, yeah, I can do that. Put the bread in the toaster and uh, put the toaster down. Went to cut the cheese. And could I cut the cheese? No, because my hands wouldn't allow me to grip a knife properly. Anyway, I, I did what I thought I could do with the cheese. Um, put it on the, the toast and then went to put it under the grill. And it came out like lemon curd on toast. It looked like a very thin piece of well, cheese, um, but it was lemon curd. And I cried my eyes out because I couldn't do it. I, I couldn't do a simple task like cheese on toast. And my wife came home from work and she knew that I'd been upset. And she said, what's wrong with you? And I just went, I tried to make cheese on toast and I couldn't do it. I said, oh, you daft sod, why didn't you use the grater? And I'm like, I didn't even think about using the grater. Just, but yeah, I mean, it's, you live and learn, don't you? Just going back and talking a little bit more about uh, your your charity, I, I, I'm intrigued, Nick, just to know from, from you. So what do you feel that, that, that you do with stroke information that the larger, let's say, you know, the, 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 the big uh, charities do not do. Uh, I know you mentioned. Well, look, they, they tend to charge for uh, uh, joining a club. They then have a a sort of nominal fee that they have to pay to the to the national uh, charity. But uh, additional to that, where do you, where do you think that the larger charities are should focus and are not focusing at this point in time? Personally, I think that what it is is they've gone too big. And um, effectively, no, it's not that they don't care um, because they do care, but it's it's as though, as a prime example, um, I through my connections with football, I had uh, and arranged a, a charity game that was for uh, the benefits were the beneficiaries would be motor neuron disease and the National Stroke Charity, um, and I, I chose that because. One of my close friends who plays played for 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 Altrincham um, developed motor neuron disease, and again it was it was a, around the time of the um, the ice bucket challenge. So I, I wanted to do something similar. And although you know, obviously, if you've got a neuro condition, then you should not be doing anything like ice bucket challenges on your head and things like that. So. I organised a charity football match. I mean, I arranged for um, the referee to be involved and, you know, everything. Um, ticketing, a price for a ticket. And um, the only time the National Stroke Charity got involved was to come and collect the cheque. And I'm thinking, hang on a minute, this is wrong. You should be here providing with buckets, T-shirts, and, and raising that proper awareness and you're not, I think, not necessarily just the, the sort of National Stroke Charity. I think other larger charities that have just got too big that they don't really focus on what's really important. You know, they, when, certainly with, with, the, with Stroke and the National Charity, I felt that you are um, the latest kid on the block once you've had your stroke. You're the latest person that they focus on. And then as soon as they find out about another one, of another stroke survivor of a different age in a different location, they focus on them. 
I'm still here. I still need that help and support, but you've gone. And I'm like, mm, this is not right. And with the, the situation with regarding to when I talk about stroke information, trying to get people back into work, I am fully aware that, again, the misconception of that strokes are um, into elderly people, but it's, it's more about a question of giving them a sense of purpose so that if, if they are 60 plus, for instance, past retirement age, and they don't want to work anymore, that's fine. Or they don't have to work again, that's fine. But it's to give them a sense of involvement, a sense of purpose, a, a, a life that they can say, well, Tom's had a stroke, he's 63. This is Tom's story, giving him that opportunity to express how he feels. Because, you know, I'm a, I'm a firm believer that obviously we focus on the fact that there are all types of different strokes. But on the same token, there's also... Uh, different rehab as well so it's different recovery programs and rehab stories so yeah each their own but I, th I, I think I'd just like to encourage everyone to tell their story. I think that's a that's a fantastic thing to say Nick you know encouraging everyone to, to tell their story. Can I just say it, it's been such a pleasure talking to you and learning more uh, not only about your own story but you know what you're doing with stroke information is absolutely fantastic. We will put a link, of course, to Stroke Information in the description box when the, when the podcast goes out. And, you know, if you want to send us any information at all, you know, about Stroke Information, we'll, we, we're very happy to uh, promote that on our website and social media, etc. Brilliant. You've been a, re a really fantastic guest. If anyone uh, wants to read my story, I have written a book. Oh, brilliant. Uh, what, what's the book called, Nick? Because remember, this is an audio-only podcast. yeah. yeah. It's called Injury Time. The price of it is ten pound. And and is that is that available at, on uh, Amazon, etc.? Um, it's not. It's just direct with us at the moment. Um, okay. Uh, so if people want to buy that book, contact contact Stroke Information directly. Yeah, and we'll send it. It's not a problem. It's ten pound per copy, and the money goes to the charity. And what what I've actually done is I've agreed. To split the profit as partially goes to Stroke Information and partially goes to Michelle Wheatley, who is our one of our patrons, who is she was 27 when she had her stroke. She's now 37 and she's still locked in. Um, so there's right. a little bit way there that we can, it, you know, when, on the same token, like with, with Kate and all the rest of it, it's it's not about my story. It's about all of us collectively that we've all been through. And, uh, you know, even in Michelle's case, she's still fighting to be sort of free. And, you know, going back to when people say, oh, I've given up, I would never give up just for Michelle because if, who knows that in, a year's time or whatever with neuroplasticity and all the rest of it, who knows whether she will come out of it. Um, and wh whilst I've got a breath in my body, I will do my utmost to make sure that we make people aware of how devastating a stroke can be. And very quickly, before you go, obviously, um, our mascot is called Steady Eddie. And this is obviously for your purpose. You can see him there. Um, but Steady Eddie is a tortoise based on Aesop's fable as the one that takes the time, gets there in the end, and that's what it's like recovering from a stroke. So you just, just bear that in mind for, for your, all your listeners um, that if you're determined to do something, 
just take your time and you'll you'll get there. Nick, thank you so much for being such a wonderful guest uh, on our podcast today. Where do I send the invoice? <laughs> I'm only kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> Thanks for having me. That was Nick Clark from the charity Stroke Information, and we've provided a link to Stroke Information in the description box. For more information on our work, please do visit our website at www.interactstrokesupport.org. And if you're feeling generous, please do click on the big red donate button. We very much look forward to your company on the next edition of Right Side of the Brain.